Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Three chapters to go. Our verse by verse, chapter by chapter, study through the book of Revelation. Who would have thought that we could get through verse by verse, chapter by chapter? And uh, here we are at Revelation 20. Uh, It promises to be quite a dramatic chapter. Um, So let's ask the Lord for his help. And his grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to just bow our hearts before you and acknowledge your presence. Jesus taught us that wherever two or more gather together in his precious name, that he is there in the midst of it. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that um, the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding. And in this rather amazing chapter that is rather uncomfortable. It's very clear, but it's very uncomfortable. Can you help us to understand uh, with wisdom and truth and uh, provide for us practical application because you want us to be blessed and consider these things to take them to heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't see a whole lot of movies, uh, but... When I do, there's something I have zero tolerance for, and that's to be left hanging at the end. Um, I uh, don't like it when there isn't any resolve or there's lots of questions or lots of wondering. You know, I paid money uh, for you guys to write the screenplay. I don't want to have to write the conclusion for you. Do you know what I'm saying? Anybody like that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, the Lord Jesus is revealing to the Apostle John an action-packed thriller, a vision. John sees heaven open and a voice. God says to him, come up here, John. I, I will show you what's going to happen in the future. Here's advanced history of how the end of the world happens in the beginning of his kingdom, Christ's kingdom here on earth. Well, the scenes that unfold... Before the mind's eye of the apostle, like a 17-chapter action-packed thriller. And what I appreciate about it a lot is is that it won't leave you hanging. Uh, God wants the church to know. He reveals uh, the advanced history to John. And then he says, write to the church. Because I want the church, my people of all ages, throughout all ages, to... Take these words to heart. Chapter 1 and verse 3, the only blessing promised for just simply reading and taking to heart the words of the book, the only book in all of 66 books in the whole canon of scriptures with that blessing is the book, the revelation, uh, the prophecy of Jesus Christ about the future of this world. And so he really wants us to take these words to heart. So here we are, chapter 20, three chapters to go. So we're in the conclusion of the drama of God's great plan. And this morning, we're going to find out how things wrap up when it comes to the final tragic end for the devil and for all those who follow him, reject Jesus and the gospel, Uh, By their choices, they make themselves God's enemies. And then we see how that all wraps up in chapter uh, 20. You know, it makes a lot of sense, and we know it's true. When you follow somebody, you end up in the same place of that person you're following. And so we're going to see how that all resolves. So there's no wondering about whatever happened to the rebel unbelievers or the devil who they followed or the Antichrist. Um, It's all explained there, black and white, pretty easy stuff, Uh, uh, albeit very, uh, what's the right word, disconcerting, very um, unsettling. So this is the most unsettling truth of all the Gospels, but we're going to take a look at it uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So here's the context. If you're just joining us, how it kind of unfolded. Um, The Lord has come 
like a thief in the night, he described his first coming for the church as like a thief who slips in and slips out without you even noticing. And so he has come to the earth and take in what we believe, the, the, his church, his valuables, and he's taken them, slipped in, slipped out, and just like when a thief strikes at your house, you look around and say, hey, hey, what happened to the, and in this case, it would be uh, the person, <laughs> because he's come in and taken one and left the other. I guess he's taken the royal china, but he's left the paper plates. <laughs> no offense to any paper plates out there. Uh, then the devil and his boy, called the beast or the antichrist or dear leader or president of the world, along with his spiritual advisor, the false prophet, They lead the world in deception, and uh, they go on a a killing spree of anybody who doesn't worship dear leader or take his number or mark, and that was, of course, the famous 666. Then God um, judges the Christ-rejecting world in 21 judgments from chapter 6 to chapter 18, 21 judgments that leave the earth really unrecognizable. It doesn't look like it could even support life uh, and and barely can. uh, If the Lord had not come when he did, the Lord himself said that uh, scarcely any human life would be left. And so uh, nations collapse, the mountains are leveled, Armageddon happens, the oceans die. It's just a terrible thing. Uh, But that doesn't stop the rebels, The rebels right to the end, the kings of the earth gather their armies there at Armageddon, uh, all the 666ers, and they they get in line there, 200 million strong, the Bible says. They're in the Valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon. But, you know, it's not really a battle because nothing, there's no shots fired. I mean, before it has time to start, the Lord opens his mouth and he speaks and I said last week, I wonder what that word would be. Uh, and I say, you know, something sarcastic, like, are you kidding me? Or, you know, but something he says just levels them. And uh, it, Psalm 2 saw this day coming. Psalm 2, why did the nations rage and the peoples conspire in utter futility? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord to fight against his Messiah, Jesus. And, and then... He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The word in the Greek means to mock or to have scorn for. And so uh, I can just imagine him saying something. It's not going to be very pleasant, uh, short, maybe sweet and to the point. But Jesus speaks and Armageddon is finished. There's really no battle. They, they wage war, and I'm quoting Revelation, against the Lamb, Jesus Christ, but the Lamb will triumph over them because he's the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So uh, this is a great mystery, but the church has been raised and glorified, and we in our eternal bodies are with him at his coming. Now, did you ever have trouble with that simple little verse in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2? where it says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated, for you have died, and your life is hidden in Christ, in God. When Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I had somebody say for many years, they never understood that. Oh, now they understand that. It says, you know what? You're hidden when you become a Christian. Your life is really done here. And you're really, your true essence is in the Lord. And then he says, when Christ appears at the end, you also will appear with him in glory. And so really that's how it lays out. We We come with the Lord. The Lord fights the battle. They go down like dominoes, and it's time to establish his kingdom. And that is called uh, the kingdom age in the Old Testament, and we're going to get a new name for it in this chapter. And so uh, the first order of business before the kingdom age starts, this beautiful age of 
righteousness, where Jesus is reigning and ruling from uh, the throne there in Jerusalem, in a perfect world. Um, Before that happens, two infamous troublemakers we saw last time, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are captured and thrown alive into uh, the uh, lake of fire, which burns with sulfur. That's a quote from last chapter. Now, you might have questions like, well, you know, did, did, did the Bible leave us hanging? What, what happens to the devil? What happens uh, to those who follow him? Uh, is, the, is the earth done with him forever? Was, is Armageddon the final, final battle? Um, how about the Lord's followers? What's up with them? What are, the, what are they doing? And, and P.S., uh, what happens to all the unbelievers who die in their sins? What's their destiny? Well, all this and more, and I always love it when you ask questions, because the <laughs> answers are going to be in this chapter here. Now, if you're taking notes, and even if you're not, the chapter divides nicely into four little segments, and we have that for you. Um, the first point will be the devil's doom, one through three. The second point, the believer's reward, verses four through six. The third point, a short-lived future rebellion, seven through 10. And the terrifying end for all such rebels, 11 through 15. Let's get started, one through three. And I saw an angel coming down from out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, And holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it shut over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for just a short time. Well, let's pause there and take a look at uh, the first point that the devil's captured his doom, one through three. He's locked up and bound. Now, the Bible takes great pains to use several verbs to emphasize that the devil is captured and for the purposes of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom age, he is not useful. He shall be bound and taken away. Now, I want you to notice with me that there's really no scuffle. You don't see big resistance. You don't see the angel breaking a sweat or needing to uh, you know, take some meds for a panic anxiety attack. I mean, nobody's fretting. In fact, look at the angel. It's just an angel. It, it's not, as we've heard, the great angel with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. That's a ginormous angel. And we've already met one of those. It's not uh, one of the archangels. It's not a seraphim or a cherubim or one of those multi-faced creatures with all the wings and the eyes. You know what it is? It's Joe Average Angel. (laughs) It's just first-class private angel, Bob the Angel. Bob, Bob, get that guy. All right. So he goes over, he just gets him, chains him, seizes seizes the the, the beast that he is, and throws him under. Now, apparently, this is in keeping with the Old Old Testament scripture that says in person, the devil is very unimpressive. Uh, In fact, let me quote from Isaiah 14. You are brought down to Hades and to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will marvel in amazement and ask, is this the one who made the earth tremble and shook kingdoms? A little bit of a letdown when you see him in person, and you know why. The New Testament describes him as uh, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He is the master of disguise. And so, of course, the disguises are pulled. He's a master at smoke and mirrors. And there's no more smoke. Well, there will be smoke, as we have read. Uh, but the mirrors are gone. And so uh, nobody is quite as impressed now with the magic show. And, and uh, so we see that 
the golden age has dawned, and, and uh, there are 400 verses in the Bible, and mostly in the Old Testament, that gives us detailed, graphic, beautiful picture of a kingdom that's coming that our Lord called us for 2,000 years to pray that it would come. This kingdom, this literal kingdom, there there would be no point in telling the church to pray for the coming kingdom that his will in heaven would be done on earth in this kingdom as the whole Old Testament said it would if there wasn't a literal kingdom coming. We know a lot about the character. We know a lot what goes on there. But we didn't know until this chapter how long it lasts. Six times in your text, it says 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, 1,000 years, and 1,000 years. And so now we know this wonderful kingdom. Let me remind you of what the essence of what we're talking about from Isaiah 9, famous scripture from Christmas time. For unto us is a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he shall be called, well, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice, righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will make sure this happens, will accomplish these things. Uh, Knowledge of the Lord in all the earth, peace, poverty unknown, no prisons, no hospitals, no mental institutions, no convalescent homes, no adult bookstores, no barracks, uh, no bad stuff, no war. And in such a world, there can be no devil. So... Business number one, seize it and remove it from the 1,000-year period. Now, um, four names are given for him that just kind of show you why he doesn't fit in the kingdom and why God can't tolerate a little of him here and there. He has to be totally 100% removed. Why? Number one, he's a dragon. And in this kingdom, we've already read in lots of places None shall make them afraid. In the kingdom that's coming, there will be no cause to fear, really. So, so the ferociousness of the dragon, done. Uh, serpent, the one who deceived Eve and Adam and uh, caused the fall and temp- tempts and, and is a stumbling block, spiritually speaking. Uh, there shall be no such spiritual impediments to obedience in the kingdom that's coming. So the serpent is done away with. The devil, his, that name means slanderer or accuser. He heaps condemnation on people. Well, there's, this is a place of righteousness and truth, and so uh, no place for him there. And lastly, Satan, the name means adversary or enemy. Uh, God is reigning in a visible, the, the, the visible God right there. The image of the invisible God, Jesus Christ. This Colossians chapter 1 tells us who he is. He's on the throne, so you know what? There are no real enemies, so Satan is bound. Now, we get this chronology here, six times a thousand years, and we call it the millennial kingdom. Now, don't let people bother you with the same thing they say about the rapture. Rapture isn't even mentioned in the Bible. Well, I taught you how to respond to that because the word is in the Bible. It's an actual transliteration of the verb caught up. Millennial just is another Latin word, mille for a thousand, and annum for year, And so the thousand-year reign from the Latin, millennial, so it's stuck, and everybody just calls it the millennium, even though it's kind of a tongue twister. And when you have to talk about millennialism, and then you have to talk about amillennialism. Are you a millennialist? You know, well, actually, I'm a a millennial post, yeah, see, (laughs) never mind. The millennial kingdom. Let me help you with just a little outline of what it looks like because Christians 
are the weakest in their knowledge about the millennial kingdom. Why? Because most pastors, I'm sorry, today stay out of the book of Revelation because it's, quote-unquote, too controversial, too uncomfortable, or, or, or too confusing. You know what? If we just take the word as it is and not try to contort it like some Romanian gymnast, you know, into... Sorry. It worked better first service, that line. <laughs> But you like the paper plates better. <laughs> um, it's not that hard. You know when it gets hard? When we start saying, well, what does that really mean? It might not suggest to you that it might really mean what it really means. What it says is what it means. And when, it, when there's confusion, there are other ways to find out what's going on. Let me talk about the millennial kingdom, this kingdom. All right? Jesus sits on the throne of David. Just like Gabriel told Mary, this son is going to grow up and he is going to sit on David's throne and reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. That's and rule with an iron scepter. This is what's going to happen. Uh, he rules from Jerusalem with the glorified church. We have all been resurrected, perfected. We are in our eternal Perfected bodies. Those who survive the great tribulation, who are saved, populate an earthly kingdom. We reign with Christ and administrate his justice over flesh and blood human beings who, because of the climatological changes in the world and the curse being lifted, and the devil being put away, they are able to live up the entire length of the kingdom, a thousand years, like the days before the flood. The days before the flood, we're working back to eternal life into the garden, and they get a thousand years. They are flesh and blood, they marry, they procreate, they become nations of the earth in that thousand years, we are perfected. They still have a little sin nature. They have the sin nature. But he rules with a rod of iron. There's zero, he's a dictator. There's zero tolerance for any sin at all. In fact, you can die. They can die. We can no longer die. We've been resurrected. And if they do die at 100, it would be like a baby dying. So we, we understand that the only ones who really do die in the millennial kingdom are those who rebel and step out of line. And the Lord reigns, and there's peace, and there's goodness. Can you imagine a dictator that enforces love, goodness, purity, just this wonderful, I mean, that's the kind of dictator we need, amen? <laughs> Uh, and so this is the kind of situation uh, that we are entrusted with. Now, some like to spiritualize the 1,000 years, and uh, that is called, I don't know if we've seen it yet, amillennialism. The ah just means no, millennialism, 1,000 years. And it's a theology that millions of Christians embrace. And I'm going to talk to you why it's a fallacy and why you will leave today able to take one scripture and disprove the whole theory. All right? So uh, let's talk about it. Um, they say, all millennialists say, that this now is the spiritual kingdom, the thousand years we're in it now. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> it's just so great. Yeah. Okay, uh, listen, here's what they say about this verse, and this is their verse that is, I call the torpedo. Their death knell is this verse about the devil. Now, they say the devil was bound in this verse at the cross. All right? So that he's completely bound. But let me help you out with this. Not only is he chained, he's in the abuso in the Greek. He's in the, the place, it's called a bottomless pit. It could be in the sphere, the middle of the earth. Uh, whatever that means, it's a place of confinement for demons. It's not the lake of fire. 
but he's, there's a seal of God over it. So, he, so we know for sure he's totally out of the picture. He's removed, correct? That's what they say. At the cross, that happened. 1 Peter 5.8. Be on alert. Your enemy, the devil, is on the loose, roaming to and forth. To and forth. Roaming around, <laughs> taking a walk, you know, leaping here and there. Uh, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Now, if he's on a chain, that must be a mighty long chain. Because what is he doing? How does he get out? How is he? How? James, resist the devil and he'll flee. What is he telecommuting from the abyss? You know, what, what are you telling me that for? Judas, and, uh, J- Satan enters Judas. Did he break the seal? Did the, did the chain break? He must have been more powerful than the angel. And, and the God who sealed him in the abyss, away. Ephesians chapter 2, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, who, quote, is now at work in, I'm sorry, I could go on for days, and I probably will. Don't tempt me. All we needed was one. And when you destroy it with one scripture, 1 Peter 5.8 would be the one for me, that he roams. When your Bible just told you he's confined on a chain, sealed in a pit, can't get out to the end. But you're telling me it's now dissolved 100%. It's a lie right there. Now, the problem is, is when you have a beloved theology, it's not that easy to just look at 1 Peter 5, 8. And then, then you say, well, what does Rome really mean? And what does enter Judas really mean? Do you know what it really means? It means he entered Judas. And that the devil is prowling around. He's loose. All right? That's what it really means. Well, there's a lot of holes with amillennialism. So many other problems. Um, Shall we? I'll tell you a few of them. Isaiah 11. The wolf will live together with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and a little child shall lead them. You know, in Africa, when the kids are kind of getting all over mom in the hut, you know, the mom just says, would you go outside, go outside, play with the leopards, play with the leopards. Yeah, no, they don't say that. You know why? That would be dangerous. But in the, in the kingdom to come, they'll be able to do that. Listen, the lion can lay down with the lamb. You're right. And, but you've got to phrase it this way. The lion will lay down with the lamb chops. <laughs> oh, my word. Please. Um, in that day, the nations will say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths. The word of the Lord will govern out of Jerusalem, and the Lord shall judge and decide disputes for many people. See, they still have sin nature. There's conflict. There's disputes. But they're judged. The rod of iron. Through not just the Lord, but through us, his people, who are administrating and are an extension of his uh, rule on the earth. Nations will live in peace. They shall trade in their swords for agricultural tools, and no one will train for war. That's today? Hmm. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their hearts. They will be my God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Well, let me sum it up to you this way. The devil is still at work. Lions still eat meat. War still abounds. And evangelism efforts are still needed. Therefore, we are not in the millennial kingdom. It's coming 
and we cannot spiritualize truths in the Bible to suit our various theologies, but we need to let the clear facts of Scripture speak and dictate our theologies to us. What's the motivation behind spiritualizing such a beautiful concept? Well, there always is a motivation to a theology that parts with the clear-cut understanding of the Scriptures. And uh, let me tell you, amillennialism has a motivation. Now, if Catholicism is where amillennialism started, and then it was picked up by Martin Luther, who spread it to the Reformation. And here's what the problem was. The Jews wouldn't convert for Catholicism. Starting at 300, 400, 500, 600 A.D., Catholicism began. The Jews wouldn't convert. So they said they're the enemies of God. They've killed the Lord Jesus. They will not convert. Therefore, they have forfeited their place as the chosen people. And we, the church, have replaced them. And it's called replacement theology. Now, Martin Luther had a problem when he went to Israel and tried to do some evangelism. They rejected him, threw him out of the place. He got so angry with the Jews, calling them the killers of our Lord, the the enemies, that he elaborated on this concept that we Christians have replaced them. The Jews have forfeited. How could those nasty resistors who killed the Lord Jesus ever be in God's plan of redemption. So they replaced Israel with the church, and here's what they say. They say, if Israel is replaced by the church, then we have to do away with the kingdom because the kingdom revolves around Israel. Israel's the superpower in the kingdom. So if we're going to say Israel bad, God turned his his back on them, they're done, we're the chosen people, then any reference to a coming kingdom has to be spiritualized and meant for the church. That's the motivation. Replacement theology is the mother who gave birth to the, the need and the consequence of amillennialism, and millions of Christians buy it. Lutherans, Catholicism, and anybody who uh, likes Martin Luther, the Presbyterians. And so is it something that takes you out of heaven? No, but if you can explain away on millennialism with one verse, then, then you, there's a problem that's false. And anything false doesn't have much blessing in it. Amen? Let me help you with the replacement theology. Romans chapter 11 Paul says, now what about the Jews? They are the enemy right now. They're persecuting all the apostles. But did Israel stumble as to fall? He says, so I ask, and he answers that. Not at all, he says. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brother, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, quote, Israel will be saved, all Israel. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Replacement theology dies in Romans 11, verse 25. Because Paul says, is it completely over? Let me answer that according to the Holy Spirit and God's holy word. No, it isn't. They're all going to be saved and God has not given up on the Jews. Done. End of replacement theology right there. But let me give you another one just because I know you want one. All right. Jeremiah 31, 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees um, vanish from my sight 
declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease to be a nation before me? Here's a nice little paraphrase. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. The devil is not chained. The world is not at peace. The earth is not filled with justice and righteousness. Israel is Israel. And the church is the church. And God has made unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Israel, and to David. And those will be fulfilled. Replacement theology is false, and so is its offspring. Can we move on now? (laughs) All right, four through six. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And by the way, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. So let's pause there. And uh, we've got some rewards now coming. Uh, The kingdom that comes is a shared reign. And we've heard all about this, that... uh, We occupy thrones. Uh, One commentator had it really uh, uh, succinct. Let me read him. Dr. Henry Morris. Who are these on the thrones? Well, the context of this preceding text, there's only one clear answer. They are the same followers. They are God's people, dressed in fine white linen, appropriate not only for the wedding feast, but for judicial robes as well. These are they who comprise the armies accompanying Christ as he returned to earth. All who had been redeemed by his blood, resurrected from the grave, caught up into his presence, evaluated for their rewards at the judgment seat. These will apparently be assigned individual thrones and spheres of authority and influence in the coming kingdom unless they are deemed undeserving of such reward. And that would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but the uh, reward where, where there's wood, hay, and stubble that gets burned up, but it ends with either a loss of reward or reward, but the per- person is always saved in that judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we knew this was coming, that we would one day sit on thrones with the Lord um, and to judge the world. Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians 6, kind of a by-the-way remark that we wish he would have stopped and talked about. He says to the Corinthians who are suing each other, Christians in court, in front of the unbelievers. And he says, you guys, come on. Are you kidding me? You're taking each other to court. Don't you realize that you will judge the world? Don't you know that the saints will judge angels and you're not competent in such matters as these? Now everybody's like, and then he just moves on. (laughs) You know, we're like, oh, wait a second, we're judging the world? What'd you say? We, we, We sit on thrones and judge angels? And he says, yeah, yeah, but that's just to tell you you ought to be able to make your decisions. Let me talk about something else. All right, so here's kind of what's going on. Jesus tells a parable that gets us to understand what's going on in this kingdom as far as our responsibility goes and how that is determined. I mean, who gets what throne and what sphere of influence will you have and will I have? Oh, Jesus says, oh, I'll tell you how that works. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The king is going to go on a trip and he's going to be away for a long time. He calls in 10 of his servants. And he says, I'm going away, but I, I want to give each of you $100. Let's call it $100. And uh, I'm going to go away. You invest the money. When I come back, we'll see how well you did with the 100 bucks. This is in Luke chapter 19. And so he comes back, and he calls the first one in. And he says, well, how'd you do? He said, man, your 100 bucks, 
it produced 10 times as much. I got a thousand bucks right here. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. It, it produced 10 times? Let me give you 10 cities to rule. Bring in the next guy. The next guy comes in. He had been given the same amount, the same gifting, the same calling, but worked half as hard. He was half as faithful because they both started out with 100 bucks. And he says, sir, I got 500, five times your money. He says, I got 500 bucks. And he says, you take charge of five cities. So now we understand the concept of the life and calling that God has given us He's, the king has given you something the day you started believing. Gifts and callings, a life, a Christian life that involves service, that involves devotion, that involves how you think and speak and live and serve and interact and share and not share and obey and disobey your whole life. And he returns and you see him face to face. And he says, okay, here's what I gave you. Not what I gave Pastor Ross. What I gave you to raise your kids, be at home mom, whatever. Not an evangelism calling, but this is what I gave you. Let's see how you did with it. That's how it's determined. So it doesn't matter who you are. Let's say that you're not a real ministry-minded person, but you're a real faithfully-minded person. You can be on the biggest throne there because it's not about... Outward, oh, Billy Graham's on a big throne. Not necessarily, because we don't know how faithful he is to the Lord. It looks pretty good. (laughs) It looks pretty good. However, we don't know anything. You know, Jesus is like, the trumpets are blowing, they're in the um, temple, and people are giving riches. And, And Jesus says, stop, whoa, look at that. A little old lady over there. I tell you what, you want to blow a trumpet, the Son of God is really impressed. She threw in two pennies. You know what? Somebody had just given her those two pennies just to buy a a little bite of something. And you know what? She wanted to have something to throw in like everybody else, and she took the only two pennies she had and threw it in. And I'll tell you what, that's big news, buddy. So she can administrate over 10 cities or 100 cities just like some big, important person, because it doesn't matter about outward expression. It's inward devotion and fulfilling your own call. And only God knows what that is. Nobody else knows. You don't know about my callings, and I don't know about yours. We see the outward, but we can't really be sure. And all, all the way, all this to say, be faithful, because, buddy, you are determining your sphere of influence there. There will be some Christians who are saved will have zero influence. They will be glad to be there. They'll be a part of things. They're well loved, but they, they, they squandered the whole deal, but they had saving faith. First Corinthians chapter 3, 10 through 15. Check it out. So all of that to say, now I know some of you are thinking, I, I know how this is going to be. I'm going to be ruler over Hayfork County. You know, or, or weed, or uh, Winnemucca. That's me, um, with the fourteen people and four dogs and and two cats. You know what? Listen, we're all broken. We're all depraved. All right. And and listen to how God, your Father, wants to make it so easy for you. He says, a cup of cold water, a cup of cold water. Anybody could do it. Done in my name for somebody. Is is that a compliment? Is that a prayer? Is that a, hey, let me get the door for you. He wants to make it easy so that on Christmas morning, his kids open the door and go, oh, yes. That's what a father's heart is. So he lays them up in store. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, we were created in Christ to do good works that God has prepared before for us before the foundation of the world. In other words, he set you up with lots of opportunities to find good works so that as you do them, you're accumulating for that great day when he says, hey, you know what you're going to get? Take charge of this. 
And you're going to have a throne and a rule and a sphere of influence and service. And it start, it's determined by how you live this afternoon. Today, we'll have counted for then. Uh, there are two resurrections in this passage. Let me just sum it up because I've got to move a little bit faster. There are only two resurrections. There's one to life and one to death. That's very easy. So the first resurrection isn't like a one-time resurrection. It started with Jesus, who is called the first fruit of the dead. And it includes those he led from the righteous side of Sheol into God's presence. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us about that. So it's Jesus, the Old Testament saved, the dead in Christ, the raptured church, and the tribulation saints. In short, every saved soul is resurrected and up and running at the start of that kingdom. That's just an easy way to think about it. Everybody who's saved from all time is in that one resurrection that leads to life. John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus said, Don't be uh, surprised to hear that uh, one day those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Daniel chapter 12. In that day, many will rise, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. So there are two resurrections and they're separated by the thousand years. And why, why is that? Because the holding tank of Hades for departed lost souls is not completely full yet. During the thousand years, there's a rebellion of human beings that will also go into that place. So the Lord says, we must wait until the thousand years is over. When I fulfilled my purposes for a thousand year reign, then when we're moving into the eternal state, then it'll be time to take care of the wicked dead and up they will be raised, not into life, but for sentencing. And so that's what we're going to take a look at uh, today, 7 through 10. Now, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown some 1,000 years previous. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we're at number three. A short-lived, sad to say, future rebellion must take place. And there are some reasons for this. I'm going to help you uh, come to grips with having to see Satan loosed again and seeing another uh, quote-unquote battle, which is like Armageddon. It doesn't really get off the ground. Now, so picture this. The long, blissful ages of the millennial kingdom roll by, and uh, we've got the unlock now, the padlock. There you go. (sighs) All is right with the universe now. He's loose. Now he's loose because God has a purpose. You see, the people born in the millennial kingdom have never really been given a choice. The dictator of love and goodness rules with a rod of iron, zero tolerance. There's conformity. And even nations that don't want to do the Jewish holidays, oh, we don't want to go up to worship the Lord this year. No rain. So everybody's in, on their best behavior. And nobody knows who's who. Because everybody's very well behaved. So the Lord, in essence, says to the devil, I need a job done. I need you to, to do a survey. I need you to start whispering and doing your thing. Because I need to find out who's who. 
Who really loves me or who really, if given the opportunity, would stab me in the back if they could get away with it, just thrust a dagger right in my back? I need to know who's who because we're moving on into the eternal state. We're going to close up this part of the kingdom. And I just, I just want to know. And I want everybody else to know that this is who they really were. And there's some other reasons as well. So here comes the test. The devil is going to proctor it. And, uh, you know, it's sad, not him again, but he comes out to do what he does best is to deceive, to tempt, and to give a choice. Now, you know, folks who are really bummed about this, listen, uh, you know what makes love love? Choice. You're going to have a choice, really. And they really haven't had one. They've had a thousand years of uh, a good life, but now they're going to have to have an inward embrace of God's lordship means something to the individual, not just outer compliance. And so here, here comes the devil. He's loosed, right? And here comes the slander. And here's what I picture him saying. Hey, aren't you just a little tired of my way or the highway, that attitude of his? Just, just getting you a little under the skin. Oh, he's got to do his way all the way in a happy way, you know? Um, by the way, you don't really believe all the stories about the old world that the Lord and his people tell you about. Let me tell you, because I was there, baby. Those were the glory days. There was freedom of expression. You didn't always have to check in with the leader and the rod of iron. Oh, it was a world. And let me tell you, who do those glorified human beings think they are? Do you know they were just like you one time? Oh, just like you. And all they did was cry out, Jesus, save me. And all their sins just whooshed away. But you know you? One wrong move and bam, the rod of iron. You can't even think. You can't enjoy yourself. You can't do anything. But look, you know the guy who rules this area? I know him from the old world. Let me tell you who he used to be. Slander. Liar. And he thinks he's all Mr. Scepter and all Jesus this and Jesus that. I'll tell you what. You know what he did in his old life? And our rebellion starts. And he sees and he's feeling it everywhere. There we go. He says, hey, follow me. I almost did it last time. Uh, And I've had a thousand years to think things through. So I'm going to come out. I've got some new ideas. I'm sure they'll work better. You know, and even if we can't throw them completely over, we can inflict a lot of harm. After a thousand years of this, let's give a little bit back to them. And they're saying, yeah. Well, like Armageddon doesn't really get a chance to get fired up. Well, <laughs> don't get fired up, but from the, a different way. And fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. Um, in a jaw-dropping surprise, we see innumerable hosts follow. Um, perfect environment, perfect visible Lord of love, truth, righteousness, and peace. And, they, and all of those people... Uh, Dave Guzik on this verse. In this we see more of, the, uh, more of the important reason God has for the millennial kingdom and allowing this final rebellion. For all of human history, man has wanted to blame his sinful condition on his environment. Of course I turned out this way. Did you see my family I come from? Did you see the neighborhood I grew up with? It's always somebody else's fault. With the millennial kingdom of Jesus, God will give mankind a thousand years of perfect environment with no Satan, no crime, no violence, no evil, no other social pathology. But at the end of a thousand years, man will still rebel against God at his first opportunity. This will powerfully demonstrate that the problem is in us, not only in our environment. Jeremiah 17.9, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it beyond cure? And so we're headed to the eternal state where there'll be no more flesh and blood, no more imperfection, no more sin, no more evil, no more battles. That day, 
It will be a final cessation of all things evil. And so in a split second, the fire comes down. They're, they're done with, and the devil is this time taken not to the abyss, but to Gehenna, which is a Hebrew borrowed word into Greek, which means burning fire, landfill kind of thing. And so that's the word for hell. And so he goes to where the place uh, where the false prophet and the Antichrist are. And now the unholy Trinity family is together forever. Uh, Father Satan and the, the dear son Antichrist and the holy, unholy spirit, the um, false prophet. Um, verse 10 says these malignant beings are the first occupants, really. And now it's time for anybody who followed in that deception to be sentenced as well. Okay, last paragraph. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The death and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So number four, the terrible destiny, and we're going to be talking about um, the book of life. And here, the great white throne. So let's just start with the great white throne. Great in status and power and authority. White, purity, morality, holiness, and a throne. Kingly sovereignty. Him who sits on it. Who is that? Uh, Jesus, John 5, said, All authority to judge has been given to me. So that's Jesus on the throne. Now, earth and uh, sky flee away from his presence and there's no place for the people standing. Well, in the very next verse, chapter 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth being created. So scholars say that what's happening here is that the earth, the old earth's being done away with, moving away, earth and sky, moving away to make room for what God has coming. And there's no, they're stuck. They're stuck. They, they don't. There's no old world to be a part of anymore. And they don't fit in the new world because they're unredeemed. So there's no place for them. So they stand before the Lord. And uh, as the one writer, Dr. Walvard, said, uh, this is not a trial. They're not trying to determine uh, what the facts are. The facts are in. This is the sentencing of someone already condemned. Their standing posture means that they are now about to be sentenced. No believer ends up at the great white throne. We have a seat of judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. In Greek, the bima seat. And we've already been perfected and glorified. We're incapable of sinning once you're in your glorified body. And everybody said, amen. (laughs) Now, here... Uh, If you're not in the book of life, it means that you are going to be condemned. Um, And notice that the books are open and they're judged according to their works. And so Luke 12 kind of hints that there is some degree of punishment uh, to those who will be condemned. And so um, that's what you have here. Every thought, every word, every secret. Every deed, every sin, every single one of them, every single sin judged because they rejected the payment that was made for them. Our sins atoned for, covered. We're in the book of life, covered over. If you're not in the book of life, then you're judged by your works. They're uncovered. And he goes through them all. Righteously, perfectly, sadly. So since there'll be no evildoers, Hades, 
the holding place for departed evil souls is going to be dissolved. And then death is done. So in goes the grim reaper, whatever that means. And, and, and sadly, all the souls that shut God out. Now, there's a, a nasty blasphemous theology called universalism. And why it's blasphemous is because it says that Jesus is a liar. It sounds really nice. It says that God's love will prevent anybody from going to hell, and ultimately everybody shall be saved. Universalism. It's very trendy right now, and very young, and uh, hip, cool, eloquent preachers, and thousands of people are saying, you know what, that old school fire and brimstone, seriously, I gotta love. Well, you know what? God saw this coming. First of all, at the end of Revelation, it says, if anyone takes away the words of this prophecy, I will take away their part in the book of life. I will cross their name out. Mess with this book by taking something away or spiritualizing it away and say, you know what? It looks like they're being thrown into fire, but what, what does it really mean? Well, here's what Jesus said. We get most of our understanding of health from Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus said things like to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He told the Pharisees they were headed to hell unless they repented. In Luke 12, Jesus told the disciples not to fear men. He said, don't fear everybody who's persecuting you. Come on. Well, what's the most they can do? Kill you. And then after that, they can't touch your soul. And that's what matters. You know who you should really be afraid of and fear reverent? God, who can kill the body and then throw the soul into eternal hell. Jesus' words for hell. Eternal, darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fire. Those are all words that we get from Jesus. Oh, but the young, hip, modern culture, the emergent church. Oh, come on. What did Jesus really mean by those words? Okay, take a fifth grader, put him down. And maybe you want to start with maybe a 12-year-old instead of the fifth grader. (laughs) And ask him what the words torment, forever, fire, darkness, agony. Just ask him. My job is not to enjoy it. My job is not to hang out in Revelation 20 and preach from it every week because I think you should avoid those kind of guys too. But you should avoid the guys who jump from 19 to 21 because it's too uncomfortable or old school or we don't think like that anymore. It's uncomfortable. It's a horrible thought, but it's the word of God. And he says, I want, I'm revealing this to you so that you take it to heart, not excuse it away or try to mitigate it somehow or soften or get around it or say, you know what? God's will is that none perish and someday his will will be done. That's not the word for God's will. Just do your homework, man. God's desires. God desires that, that none perish and that all. Well, why would Jesus go through that on the cross if not to spare people from an eternal destiny like that? Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not have life, shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. John 3.36 Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few, our Lord Jesus speaking, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be who find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in. Here's here's what they say. Well, what does that mean? What does destruction mean? Well, I could just list all the other verses that tell you and describe what that destruction is. It's eternal, it's fiery, it's dark, And it's agonizing. And it's forever. The strongest Greek words in all of Greek are used to describe this kind of condemnation. So there's there's really no getting around it. There's only an embracing. And as we embrace, what, what happens? We start to 
think differently about the way we live. We start to have compassion for the lost. We start to have boldness to share. I like what Spurgeon said as we close. I warn every, uh, not, not that, this is Spurgeon's quote. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Revelation chapter 22. Here's what Spurgeon said. <laughs> if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exhortations. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. When you start buying the lie of the devil who always started this whole problem with Eve, did God really mean die? Is that what he really said? And it's the same question today. Did he, is that what he really means? That's him doing his work. And when you start to question that, your compassion for the lost changes. Your, your, your whole idea of everything changes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believe in him should not perish. You can't take that line out without permission. God put it in there. Shall not perish but have everlasting life. And as we embrace these words, take them to heart. The fear of the Lord. The holiness the way we live, the seriousness of our life and calling will be blessed and will grow because we take these things to heart, not excuse them or justify them or spiritualize them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love your word and we wrestle with trying to understand all of the concepts emotionally But the meaning is quite clear. And we want to be obedient to receive and not be led astray by any kind of spiritual deception that that seeks to to change the clear meaning of what you... It's there. It's clear. We get it. We understand it. Oh, help us, Father, in these last days to stand strong despite a whole world that's going in the opposite direction and even in parts of the church. We pray for this... Uh, courage and this uh, protection in Jesus' name. Amen.